Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, we uh, thank you for this day. Again, we thank you for a time to open up uh, your word. God, we uh, we give you thanks for all the many ways that you have uh, blessed us, God. And we ask as as we um, as we continue to deal with the issues surrounding uh, COVID and and the what it looks like is is another spike and surge in our community. God, we continue to pray for your care and protection, um, God, not only of of our own congregation, God, but of our community in general. Father, we ask that, that the uh, severity of, of this would be mitigated um, in our community and that, God, you would help us to, to um, act in a, a way that is wise uh, and beneficial for, for those around us. Father, we continue to pray for the, the even um, more pressing concern, God, of, of spiritual awakening. Uh, we recognize that on any given Sunday, um, Father, that most of our community, most of this county, um, does not worship you. God does not know you, um, does not prioritize um, the things that you call us to prioritize in your word. Um, God, we live in ways that uh, put emphasis on any number of things. Uh, and yet we neglect your worship. God, we ask that you would change the hearts of this community uh, and that you would awaken them. Uh, God, that you would bring a sense of revival first among your church and its people, God, and then uh, allow that to spread uh, uh, to others, God, and that, that people would recognize their, their spiritual bankruptcy, their spiritual lostness, that they would recognize that, God, not only in this life is it empty, uh, without your son, Jesus Christ, but in eternity, we have no hope without him. And that you would use all of that, God, the witness of your church to draw people to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize, and as we'll talk about tonight, um, we do not know uh, how long we have. Father, whether that is because of, of our own, um, the shortness of our own lives, God, or because of your imminent return, um, God, we recognize that the time may be short. And, God, we ask that you would draw people to yourself um, while there is still day. We thank you for your word. And we ask that as we open it tonight that you would bless us through it, that you would shine the light of the Holy Spirit on it, on our hearts, and that, God, the Spirit would speak to us and we would understand this passage rightly and apply it to our lives in, in an appropriate way. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, a kind of a, kind of a, we're, we're coming to another passage. We ended on an, a, a, kind of an interesting note last week. Um, we ended on a passage, and we talked about the fact that it was a very un-Jesus-sounding passage. Okay, at least sort of in a popular um, conception of the way Jesus speaks and the way he acts in our time. Um, there were several lines in the last passage that maybe somebody might say, well, that doesn't sound a whole lot like the way I think of Jesus talking. For example, in verse 46, it says, the master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. All right. That's a, that was a, that was a strong passage, right? And, and he is talking about the judgment that will come, uh, 
upon people who are not ready at the second coming. Well, Jesus continues to talk in a, in a, in a fashion that maybe we are not used to, but there's something significant there, right? And, and it, it reminded me of something that when we were talking about uh, the founding of our church and the principles that we wanted to talk about and the, the emphases that we wanted to have is when we started our church four years ago, one of those was we talked about the idea of, of teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. Right, that we weren't going to be a hobby horse church, um, that we were going to be a church that preached expositorily through the scriptures, but that that the significance of that was to say, we're not going to skip anything. We are going to preach through what God has said, and when we hit happy passages, we're going to preach them. And when we hit hard passages, we're going to preach them. And when we hit controversial subjects, we're going to preach them. And that we're not going to pick out things because we're trying to rile people up or be controversial. We're just going to preach the word as the word comes. And and so the case is, is that we find ourselves in a position like that here. This is the kind of passage that if you were doing a shorter overview of the book of Luke, you would probably just go, we're just going to move on past this and go on to the next thing so that we don't have to deal with it. But we're not doing that with any of the book of Luke. We're hitting every verse, okay? And so when we come to a passage like this, we just say, let's see what God has to say. Let's see what we can learn about the character of God and the character of Christ in the passage uh, and, and, and his call upon our lives, okay? So again, um, we start off with, man, just from the get-go, this, this line that is sort of, um, uh, it's, 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 it, there's, there seems like there's a harshness to it. Verse 49 says, I came to cast fire upon the earth and, and would that it were already kindled. Jesus is basically saying, I wish it was already here, that fire being cast on earth and ignited. So the first question probably we need to ask is, what does that fire represent? And the answer is, it depends on who you ask in some cases. We know what the, the, the Bible, when we look to the rest of the scriptures, what fire often represents. Sometimes conflict, sometimes purification, sometimes destruction and clearing away, sometimes judgment. I think probably the best way to think about it here is in terms of prophetic rebuke and the call to repentance. Okay, The fire that Jesus is casting upon the world is, is prophetic rebuke to basically say, you have done wrong, Israel, and in, and in larger terms, the world, and there is judgment coming for these things. So again, it's not a message that's intended to soothe, okay, uh, to comfort people per se, but it's a message that's supposed to confront you, to convict you. Jesus has, has come in a way, and he's saying, I'm the one casting this fire on earth. Jesus has come to stir the pot, but notice how he wants to stir the pot, right? He says, man, I wish it were already here. I want the pot to be stirred because there's something necessary about you being awakened to the necessity of what's going on here. Jesus doesn't want to leave you in your sin. Jesus doesn't want to leave you in your unpreparedness. He doesn't want to leave you in your rebellion so that at the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment, you won't be prepared for it. Jesus knows that his message, this fire that he is casting, is going to bring resistance. It's going to bring suffering in, in people's lives. 
Jesus has come and his mission is going to bring upheaval. That's just the way it's going to be. And here's the deal, particularly for himself, right? Jesus, the, the, the upheaval and difficulty is particularly going to be found in the way people respond to him. So he doesn't step in and say, you know, I rebuke all of you people and that's going to cause a lot of problems and then now I'm going to recede somewhere, right? You, you find this in, in, in Baptist churches a lot of times and it's probably something that maybe you've never thought of if you've never had to preach or guest preach at a church. But sometimes you go to a church and maybe you're preaching out of a passage, maybe they gave you the passage or whatever, and here's something that goes through your mind. You go, should I just, should I just pull up on this passage a little bit? instead of laying into people, because this isn't my church. I don't want to lay a, a bomb down and then get to walk away because I'm not going to be here next week and have the, the, the regular pastor have to come in and pick up what I laid down or whatever. And so there is this feeling of sometimes you sort of go, man, if I'm just a guest preacher, I'm, just, I'm not going to lay it on super. I'm just going to pull a few punches. I'm just going to give a good general kind of thing or whatever, right? Um, Jesus doesn't do that, though. Jesus says, I'm the one who is going to cost the most this message, okay? I'm not leaving this here for you and then stepping out of the situation. No, the message that I bring of rebuke is going to cost me in particular. He will suffer, and he knows that's coming in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So here's just a side thing, right? So baptism, the word baptism means submersion. It means immersion in water. That's what it means. You could baptize anything. You could take any instrument and put it under water and, and in the technical Greek word, that just, that's what it means. It means to take that thing and put it under water. When we as, as Baptists present our case for full immersion baptism being the standard way that baptism is supposed to work, that's one of the ways, that's one of the evidences we go to. We say the the word baptism means something. Before we gave it a technical, liturgical, you know, religious meaning, it just meant to immerse something in water. And so by analogy, though, it also, as it does in this passage, takes on the image of being overwhelmed by something, being covered up by something, right, to be immersed in anything, in this case, in suffering. And so Jesus says, I have a baptism that I need to be baptized with, or I am going to be baptized with. He's talking about this idea of his suffering. He knows that his suffering is coming and that he is going to be metaphorically swallowed up by it the same way that we would be swallowed up by the water in immersion baptism. Jesus recognizes his own life and mission are not about peace. They're not about ease, okay? This fire that he is casting upon the earth, he is going to be a part of the upheaval that comes from that. He knew that his life was progressing to the cross even at this point. He had already experienced the rejection of his hometown. He had already experienced the opposition and hatred of, of the religious community and in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But he knew that the worst was still to come at this point. Remember back in chapter 9 when he was talking to the disciples and he said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem, right? 
Jesus knows that his rejection, torture, and crucifixion are coming. And he has his face set to meet that. Jesus knows that all of this thing will culminate in his crucifixion. And the dread of that coming reality and that coming affliction were real. We know that from the Garden of Gethsemane prayer. Jesus prays, let this cup be taken from me, right? Because he knows what it's going to cost him. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. The key to that this line, though, is notice the word that is used. This baptism, this calamity that is about to overtake Jesus is not something that he endures, but what's the word he uses? It is something that he is going to accomplish. Man, that's a, that's an interesting little word to put there. The suffering, the fire, the baptism that he is about to endure is not something to be endured, but something to be accomplished. That little word, when you look at the Greek again, of all the different meanings, to bring to a close, to finish, to end, to complete, to fulfill so that the thing done corresponds with what the intent was, to carry out the content of a command, to perform the last act which completes a process. That little Greek word kind of has all those connotations. And obviously you might say, well, yeah, Ash, that's what accomplish means. But the point is, is that the horrors of Good Friday are the means by which Jesus fulfills his mission. He understands that. He knows that the fire that is being cast on earth and the suffering that is going to come his way, and honestly, the suffering that's going to come our way, is all part of God's plan. And that upheaval that Jesus brings and the events surrounding his life are not just for their own sake, but they're for God's greater glory. And so with such a radical act, though, we shouldn't expect tranquility after, right? When Jesus does something so radical, something so um, uh, fracturing, you could say, in the act of it, man, we shouldn't expect everything to just be calm and peaceful and hunky-dory after that. And Jesus says the very thing, th- same again. He has come to cast fire. He has come to accomplish this baptism. And then what else? He says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So here's something I was thinking. We have lived in a nominally nominally Christian world for a long time, particularly in America, particularly in the South. And I feel like sometimes we think Jesus is something like a least common denominator. Meaning, and you hear, I think you, I feel like you hear Christians from another generation say things like this. They say, man, if we could just get back to Jesus, all these divisions would be put away with. If we could just get back to Jesus, um, then, then we could all be at peace with each other or something like that. Um, here's the deal. If that was ever true, it was true again because we were a often converted, but at the very least a, a nominally Christian culture. Okay. But here's the deal. That was never actually the way Jesus has never been that. It's just because largely everybody in our community in the South, in America or whatever, kind of thought in those terms. But Jesus, Jesus brings division. When we accept Jesus at face value, and again, notice the wording. What does he say? He says, I did not come to give peace. I came to give Division. What does it mean that Jesus came to give division? 
to the world. Again, I don't think that's the way we usually talk about Jesus. It's not the way we usually think about Jesus. I would bet most people would think of Jesus as being a great unifier in some nebulous sense. That's not what he says here. He says, I didn't come to bring peace and unify people. I came to divide people and bring division. So I think what we're going to do, my intention is that we're going to read Pilgrim's Progress for our good little book study at Advent. Okay. I think that's, that's sort of the general plan. It could change before we get there, but I think that's what we're going to do. And so if you've ever read it, it's a parable about, about the Christian life. It's an allegory for the Christian life. But throughout the story, there's this recurring theme that pops up and you could broadly say that it is describing the way we are always being tempted to break away from Jesus, and yet faithfulness always means returning back and following Jesus. Like in the story, there are these forces that are continually pulling the main character, whose name is Christian, and they're constantly saying, man, you should stop your quest. You should stop seeking after what God has told you to do. You should stop going after the celestial city. You should just conform. You should just assimilate back into the world. But here's the deal. Jesus preaches division, always. Jesus preaches separation from the world. He preaches breaking away from the world. Everything about the Christian life and the Christian scriptures call us out of normal, out of accepted, out of status quo. They call us to be contra-worldly, counter-cultural, because everything we're supposed to do is counter-fallen, and the world is a fallen place. Again, that doesn't mean we move to the holler and circle the wagons. That's not what I'm talking about. But it does mean that even when we are in the public square, even when we are in, in common places, we are still radically focused on something else than what everybody else there is focused on. Our hearts are focused on Christ and how he can be glorified in, in a situation, as opposed to just saying, no, I just happen to be a Christian who is also existing in this space. Because there's not anything else that we should expect. Division is a natural consequence of following Jesus because Jesus has come to separate the wheat from the chaff, the goats from the sheep, those who have followed God with those who have not. And that division can be painful and intimate in the closest and most intimate places of our lives. Again, I think to myself, I go, I think most people kind of, many people anyway, have, have the feeling that, man, if I could have me and my family, if I could have me and my cohort of friends and close people, man, I could, I could do anything. Right, I could, I could outlast. I could, the, the world could fall apart around me. If I had my people close to me, then, then I'm good. But here's the problem. The problem is, Jesus says, you're not promised that. And in fact, the likelihood is it will be the opposite of that. Jesus warns us that it may be the people who are closest to us who we are divided from. Verse 52, for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Yeah, so this is, is it something that happens in every single situation? Certainly not. But is it something that we should expect? 
think the answer is yes. Do you have family members for whom following Jesus Christ and believing the gospel has put you at a distance from them, has caused division between you and them? Close friends who you are at odds with now because you have chosen allegiance to Christ and they have not. If that is the case, that's to be expected. You should expect that to be the case. We don't relish it, right? We don't bang the drum and, and, and try to exacerbate that division. But it's what we should expect because Jesus said, I came to bring division and that division isn't going to, there's not going to be an exemption for that just with family and close friends. It will come even into those situations. Jesus is probably thinking back to the book of Micah, which gives a similar prophetic um, prediction when it talks about the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now there's confusion, their, their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Then it says this, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Right, so again, the picture in Micah is this, is this person is saying everyone around me has chosen a different side. So what is my job? What is my response to that? To try to make peace try to bring us together, to try to compromise so that we can all be of one accord? No, he says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. He says, I'm going, me and my house, we will follow the Lord. I'm going to follow God no matter what, and let everything else fall as it may. Micah acknowledges that necessity, um, that to keep peace and fellowship between loved ones is not our most important responsibility. But turning to the Lord for salvation is the most important thing. And so the reality is this, man. Every single time, the gospel draws a line in the sand. It does everywhere. It says, here is a line, and we have to decide whether we are with Christ or whether we are not. And so prayerfully, it unites those who have all chosen Christ. I pray that we are all united. But for those who will not accept Christ, it can't do anything but divide us from them. And so Israel in this passage is at that very crossroads. And Jesus is saying, you will not acknowledge who I am and what I've come to do. You will not acknowledge what is at stake. You will not acknowledge the impending judgment um, that has come upon you. And you're doing this despite what you see going on around you. That's why he talks about this thing about signs in verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say that, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites. That's key too. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. So here's the deal. And you may, you may, already understand this just from the context. 
living in the Mediterranean, particularly at the, the end of the Mediterranean, there's a simple kind of meteorological sign for the way the weather's going to work on a regular basis. Okay. If the wind is blowing from the west, meaning from the Mediterranean inland, you know that there's going to be rain. It's just what happens because that the air is being picked up off the Mediterranean, that wet, wet air, and it's going to drop the rain and you're going to have rain. So anytime the wind starts blowing from west to east, you go, the rain's coming. We should be ready for that. Okay. By the same token, there's a desert right below Israel. So anytime the wind is coming from the south, you go, it's going to be hot. We know that's the case because the wind is coming across the desert. It's picking up all that heat and it's going to be a hot day and I should prepare accordingly. Jesus points out the fact that they're very good at forecasting the weather when the signs are so obvious. Okay. We do the same thing. So you guys know I bought a truck the other day and I had this truck and it turns out that my truck, when it rains, won't start. Okay. And, and I didn't know that when I bought it, but it, it when it rains, it won't start, but then it dries out after a couple of days and it'll start again fine. And we're trying to track that down, but we haven't done it yet. Okay. But here's the deal. You know what it has created in me? Every single time I pull into my driveway, I pull my phone out and I look up the weather and I go, is it supposed to rain at 2 a.m.? Because if it is, I have to put a tarp over my car so that that night it won't get soaked and be out of commission for two or three days. Okay. Um, I know what, I know what the forecast, if I know what the forecast is, I act accordingly. If it's not going to rain, I just leave it open and then it's fine. Nothing happens, but I know what the forecast is. And so I act accordingly, right? You do the same thing every single day. If it's going to rain, you say, I should bring an umbrella. If it's going to be cold, I need to bring a jacket because you respond rightly to the forecast. But the deal is, is the Israelites aren't doing that. They see the signs in the coming of Jesus Christ. They see it in the miracles and the healings and the angels and the transfiguration and the audible voice of God at Jesus' baptism and any number of other uh, events that we could look at. And yet, despite all those things going on around them, still business as usual. They're just going about their lives, doing their thing. And that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. And that's one of the key things in this passage, right? It's appropriate. They're not ignorant. That's not the problem. Ignorance is not the issue. We talked about that last week. Remember when we read the passage where it said, those who have no much will be, much will be required of them, but but those who know little, then, then they will receive a less severe beating or something like that. That's not the case for these people. They're not in a situation where they don't know what's happening, and so they're not going to be very responsible for, for what, what ends up taking place. No, Jesus is saying, you guys are hypocrites. You're not ignorant. You know how to read the signs. You see the things going on around you, and yet you still, as we talked about last week, are unprepared. You are completely unprepared for the coming of God. They have every advantage, every indication, and yet nothing is happening. And that very concept, that little illustration there, helps us get the very end of the passage. Because here's the deal. I'm going to be honest. I wasn't, I'm not quick enough to, to figure these things out on my own. When I first read the passage, I was like, what in the world is verses 57 through 59 doing there? What, is this just one of these things where like, Luke was adding little pieces of stories everywhere and just decided to throw in this bizarre little story about going before a judge and you're in a lawsuit with somebody. Like, what possible purpose can could that have um, in this passage? And then as I continued to read and continued to think, I was like, oh, it's obvious what that passage is doing here, okay? 
Maybe it's the case that this is just a, a, um, something that we're supposed to read and think to ourselves, oh yeah, it's a, it has practical application for interpersonal disputes, right? Uh, this is what I'm supposed to do. If I ever get sued, I should try to, you know, make peace with this guy before we end up going before the courts and whatever. But where it's positioned between this passage and the next passage we're going to see next week, I think the case is, is that it has a spiritual significance, right? Jesus is, again, he doesn't tell us that he's using it as a parable, but he's using it as a parable. And the, and, and the context is this. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Again, that can help us interpret it. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. And I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penalty. So Jesus is saying this. He uses that illustration because he goes, listen, guys, judgment is coming. Okay. You are going to stand before the judge and have to give an answer for what you have done. It's coming for the people of Israel who have rejected Jesus, but it will come for all people and any people one day. And for those who have rejected Jesus, particularly for those who should have known better, people who had acknowledged, who had knowledge that they were responsible for, yet denied it, they are going to incur a greater judgment. And so Jesus says this, he says, just like in the illustration, if you know this is all going to take place, then why don't you go ahead and get things right? Why don't you go ahead and instead of waiting for the judgment to come down on you, why don't you just go ahead and make peace with the person who has the accusation against you or whatever? Now, the illustration is not to be, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but the person who has an accusation against us is God. That it's God's judgment that we are under. And he's saying, why don't we go and make peace with God while we have the chance before we end up having to deal with the consequences of this thing? And so again, it ties into our last week's passage about preparedness and and repentance. And we're going to talk about repentance more next week. About going ahead and doing the right thing now. What does that mean for us as individuals in this congregation? For some of us, it might mean coming to Christ for the very first time is that you've continued to kind of wait and, and and hold it off and say, man, I can I can come to Jesus whenever because I got plenty of time. I'm a young person. I got my whole life ahead of me. I got things I want to do right now and focus on. One of these days, I'll come to Jesus and I'll get this all right. And Jesus says, you have no idea how much time you have. And by looking at the signs of the times, you ought to be at least concerned that it could be any day. Or maybe for others, it may be not so much coming to Christ for the first time, but returning to Christ after a time of backsliding or walking in the wilderness, we could say, again, you said, man, I, I, I know I should follow Jesus, but I keep on putting it off because I just don't want to take all the energy and, and stuff that it would take to, to repent of these things and follow Jesus. Again, Jesus says to us, you know, it'd be wise to go ahead and get these things right before it's too late. Perhaps it's a relationship that you have with somebody that needs to be addressed. And there's tension there. There's a, there's a break in fellowship. And again, we talked about division right here, and sometimes we can't help that. Sometimes there's people in our lives that the division there is, is real and lasting, and it tries we might, we're not going to be able to fix it. 
because of who Jesus Christ is. If it's just because we're being a jerk, that's something different, okay? Don't blame your divisions with people if you're a jerk on Jesus. Um, don't bring Jesus into your mess, okay, if that's what's going on. You just need to stop being a jerk, okay? But if the real reason is is that you have a division with somebody because of the gospel, then, then there's nothing you can do about that. But oftentimes that's not the case. Two people who are gospel-believing Christians, two people who are united under Christ can still have relationship problems, right? And so maybe what he's calling you to do is to say, you know what, maybe you should go with that brother or sister and get these things addressed now instead of waiting for them to continue to build and and fall apart and get worse and worse. Or maybe, maybe you need to share Christ with somebody you know. Maybe there's somebody in your life and the preparedness that God is calling us to, the get things right that God is calling us to right now, the time is short that God is calling us to has to do with the fact that there are people in your life that you need to tell about Jesus. And yet you have held off because I don't want to make waves. I don't want to cause problems. I know they're not going to want to hear this. And so I'm just going to hold back. And Jesus says, time is short. You know the signs. You know the consequences. We have to act and then let people make those decisions and let the chips fall where they may. So what I want to do right now is I just want to close and we'll, we'll go before the Lord in prayer. And I don't know, probably each one of us is in a different place. I know each one of us is in a different place and I don't know where God is leading you and what the issues are in our hearts. Uh, but ask God to show those things to you. Ask him to say, what is the place that you would have me to move on, God? What is the place that you, that I've been holding off? I've known the consequences and the signs, but now I need to move forward. I need to step across that line, whatever it is. I think God will show us those things. He will open our, our hearts and open our eyes to the places that we need to do that if we will ask him. So let's go to the Lord and do that right now. Father, as your word often reminds us, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. God, it is a stumbling block to those who uh, are, are too wise for it in their own eyes. God, who have decided that, that um, they are capable of, of doing life uh, in their own power and, and of their own volition. Father, you remind us again that that in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, that while he brings peace to those who uh, recognize their need for him, God, that, that that comes along with division, division from the world and division from those who who refuse to take Jesus on his own terms. Father, we ask that you would help us to 
God, be ready to be prepared in our own hearts for the difficulty that comes from following your son, to be prepared for um, the strain that following Jesus can put on other relationships. God, we know that so many times when we trust to follow and follow Jesus, God, that you, you fix many relationships because what was wrong with those relationships before was our sin. And as, and as you begin to cleanse us of our sin and we live in righteousness, God, those issues fall away. And we are thankful for the way that you often bring peace in our interpersonal relationships. And yet we again acknowledge that many times following Jesus Christ will mean enmity with the world. And so we ask that you would help us to weather those storms. God, that we would take those necessary steps not to um, to bring, bring tranquility, God, but to faithfully align our lives with Jesus Christ. God, whatever means, whatever costs, whatever the situation, in everything let us and help us to follow Jesus Christ first and foremost. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Please stand and sing the closing song.
So we've got a uh, one more thing as you walk out today. So um, we had a cool deal where uh, Amy um, went to to Gospel Coalition Women's Conference earlier this year, and uh, as a function of the ministries uh, going on there, they said, "Hey, we would like to give you a book. Except we would like to give you as many of them as your church needs." And so uh, it's a little book called uh, "Gentle and Lowly." And so what we looks like we're going to try to do this year, we got our books in, they came in this week. And so we're going to try to use them as our uh, sort of beginning part of the fall, maybe all the way into the fall, um, uh, small group curriculum. Okay. And so um, it's an opportunity for us to all read it. Now here's the, you might say, well, Ash, I'm not uh, in a small group. Uh, we would love to invite you to one. Okay. Uh, we would love you to be a part of that. But you might say, even then, because of different schedules, I can't make it. Ash, should I just not take a book? And the answer is no, you should totally take a book because we've got enough for everybody. Okay. And so I think we've got enough for everybody who wants to read one. Um, that doesn't just mean one household. If you, you got husband and wife, you can both take one. If you've got, um, students in your household who, who will read it, then, then you can have one for each of those students as well. And, um, and we'll, uh, distribute those. And then for those who people who aren't here, we'll, we'll get them to them in the small group context. Um, and, uh, uh, that way they can have them. But, but would love for you to be a part of that. Even if you don't get to be a part of the, um, small group time, you can still be maybe reading the book along with us and they can be a part of our discussions, um, as, as we think about how, um, to engage with the culture, um, the way that Christ would. Amen. I'll give them to you as you walk out. Um, other than that, benediction. benediction. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.